All right, we're going to be talking about some good news today. We are starting a brand new series, Unit 29 of the Gospel Project. Can you believe it? Unit 29. Has anybody been following any of the unit numbers? Are you counting down at all? <laughs> we are into the book of Acts. We are talking early days in the life of the early church. And we are calling the next four weeks Show and Tell. Anybody remember Show and Tell from elementary school? Maybe, maybe we're going way, way back, but do you remember show and tell some of those early days in grade school? You got to bring in an item from home that you were really excited to show the class and tell them about it, right? Maybe it was on Friday, the last day of the week, the teacher just wanted something to get the students through, and at the start of the class, you were able to show your object and tell the class about it. I remember two show and tell instances in my lifetime at Gunningsville Elementary School in Riverview, New Brunswick, which has since closed down and boarded up. Maybe the building's destroyed by now, I, I don't know. But talk about crushing childhood memories right there, literally crushing, I'm feeling old. I remember having this model Ferrari F40 with the rear engine you could see through the back and the shiny chrome reels, die-cast metal, that, that Ferrari candy apple red, you know what I'm talking about? And I wanted to bring that in and show the class. So it's Friday, I think. It's the start of the class. And the idea was the longer you took to present, the less time that you had for math or English, right? So I remember talking about this Ferrari F40 and my friend Michael sitting in the front in his desk going like this. Keep talking. Keep talking. Say more. There's got to be more, you know? And I remember this is not where I felt my call to preaching, Okay, but I remember standing up there making up every statistic I could about this Ferrari F40. I'm pretty sure the teacher caught on and, and cut me off after a while, but I remember that. Second story I remember about show and tell. I got, for Christmas one year, this massive Lego pirate ship. Lego's expensive. Parents out there, have you looked at Lego this year? Like, we're talking, it starts at $25 for one little thing. Imagine a big pirate Lego ship, what that would have cost. I don't know what it cost back then. But this thing had multiple masts and sails and pirates on board. And this big figurine that hung off the front, it had cannons that came out the side. It had a trap door you could see down to the lower deck. This thing was cool. And I got the idea that I had to show my class, had show and tell. Now, imagine an elementary school kid carrying a big Lego thing that their parents invested all this money into, biggest Christmas gift, to school. I remember holding it in the back seat. It must have been in a box or something, but I remember it falling apart in my hands on the way to class and then getting up there to show and tell the class my destroyed pirate ship that I had just gotten for Christmas. Anyway, childhood trauma. This isn't a therapy session, but show and tell. Here's how it fits in. The early church showed the gospel and told the gospel. They not only told the gospel, they showed the gospel. They not only showed the gospel with humanitarian love efforts, they told the truth of the gospel. So for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about how the gospel was lived out in the life of the early church. Today we're talking about giving. Next week, we're going to be talking about speaking and then trusting and living the gospel. If you want to find out more about an organization or a movement, you go back to the start, don't you? 
How did it begin? What was the idea? What was the mission? What were the grassroots? Well, today we're going back to the early church. How did the gospel infiltrate and flow through the life of the early church? We're going to start by talking about generosity. And we've already taken up the offering, so you can relax. We're not going to take up another offering. We're not going to ask you for money. We are simply talking about what the Bible says in the life of the early church when it comes to generosity. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. Yes, I know which scriptures we're talking through today, Acts chapter 4 and 5, at the end of Acts chapter 4, but would you begin with me in a word of prayer? Father God, I just want to thank you so much for the time that we get to share this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship. God, I pray you'd help us to really engage in worship, that we wouldn't wait until Sunday when somebody invites us to participate, but that through the week we would be worshiping, and that when we come on Sunday, it's just an outpouring of the worship that we've experienced this week. God, help us to be in your word. God, help us to see the gospel living out in our everyday lives. God, thank you for who you are today. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 32. Are you there? Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. I want to be a church like that, don't you? Having everything in common. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. That's preaching. Their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. To be an apostle means you were face-to-face with Jesus. You were called by Jesus. You were sent out by Jesus. These guys are giving their personal eyewitness testimony to all that they saw Jesus say and do, culminating in the resurrection of Christ. Dynamic preaching. So you have preaching, you have unity and community, and you have sacrifice. You have truth, you have community, You have engagement. I want to be a church like that, having all things in common. Isn't that incredible? This is the early church. Some people suggest that the early church could be upwards of 20,000 people at this moment in time. Can you picture 20,000 people agreeing wholeheartedly on anything or being on board in a common mission in any realm? 20,000 people. I can't see it. Never since, never before, this is the early church. These are the foundational, unique days of the early church. Now, let's look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. As many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That is radical generosity. Can you picture that? Now, if the church is tens of thousands of people at this point, how have they spoken to every needy situation? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Jesus ascended back to heaven and the Holy Spirit rushed in on the day of Pentecost and the church began. It hasn't been that long. How in the world, in that short window of time, have they spoken to every needy situation there was among them? This is the radical generosity of the early church. The radical generosity of the early church. The early church was marked by radical generosity. There's no way around it. 
You know, Jesus talked more about money than any other topic. Do you realize that? Jesus talked, told stories, illustrated, challenged people on money more than any other topic. Is that not incredible? We're talking about year-end offering. We're talking about budget. We're talking about a members meeting coming up. Jesus talked more about money than any other subject. What did Jesus say about money? Well, he pointed out the widow who gave her two mites. And because she gave all that she had, she gave more than anybody else. He talked to the rich young ruler who said, all these things I have kept from my youth. He said, but one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have. And he went away sorrowful for his possessions were many. It was a heart issue. Jesus said, it's not about owning, it's about stewarding because the wealth belongs to God. Jesus said so many more things. I tried to write down everything that came to my mind. He talked, you remember the story of the Good Samaritan. He flipped the bill for the medical charges. He gave his time, his donkey, his journey. He stepped over lines of prejudice. And then he said, if you spend any more, I'll pay that too. Jesus. He teaches that we're just stewards. We're not owners. He says, give and it will be given to you. With the measure you used, it will be measured to you. Pressed down, good measure, running over will pour into your lap. Don't store up earthly possessions. Instead, give to the poor. Instead, store up possessions in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy and thieves won't break in and steal. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He says, a cup of cold water in my name. He says, don't give to be honored by others, but instead give in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But Jesus not only talked about generosity, he exemplified it, didn't he? He didn't, he didn't just tell the story of generosity, he showed the story of generosity. You see, he gave his time. He gave his honor when he washed their feet. He gave up the independent use of his divine power and abilities and took on flesh. He gave his very life, didn't he? He gave it all for you and for me. You see, generosity is at the heart of the gospel. You cannot understand or receive the gospel unless you understand that generosity is at the heart of it. Remember, I mentioned last week, John 3, 16, God's agape love, his unconditional love. For God so loved the world that he gave. Generosity. He gave it all. Generosity is at the heart of the gospel. Therefore, it has to be the heart and the mission of the church. We should not be the church if we're not generous. We should not call ourselves Christians if we don't practice generosity. How can we say to God, God, thank you for giving me forgiveness. Thank you for giving me new life. Thank you for giving me inheritance and a home and a purpose and a mission. Thank you for giving me your son. Thank you for giving me your spirit. But I'm not going to give. How can we say that? Generosity is at the heart of the gospel, so it should be at the heart of the church and the heart of every Christian. People are liquidating their assets. They're laying them at the apostles' feet. That means they're submitting to the leadership and the direction of the apostles when it comes to where and who and when and why and how that money gets distributed. That's the hard part for me when it comes to giving, isn't it? I like to give when I know where and to whom and how it's being distributed, don't you? 
And it's difficult to take your hands off and allow that responsibility to somebody else, but that's what's happening. They're selling their things and they're distributing the money to everyone equally. As any had need, speaking to all the needs, sounds a little socialist, doesn't it? Can we just admit that? No ownership, equally distributing the funds among the society. But these are radical, radical things for a radical time, aren't they? This is the early church. Talk about extreme growth. How do they keep up with it? People are getting saved by the thousands. People are being baptized by the thousands in the inner city of Jerusalem. There's persecution. We're going to be talking about murder. There's homelessness. When the mission and the need is that palpable that you can see it, smell it, hear it everywhere you go, how could you not respond by giving? We see in the early church radical generosity to speak to the needs of the people in Jerusalem as they're coming to Christ. It's hard to give when you don't see anything happening, isn't it? These people saw the gospel being lived out before their very eyes. Steve was talking about year-end financials, the members meeting we have coming up. We had a board meeting on Thursday night, and we talked about some of these things, and we were praising God. More money given than ever before, and more money given away than ever before. That's incredible. Christmas Eve, $4,400, in excess of $4,400 given to the missionaries in Honduras so they can have generosity in their communities and spread the gospel even further. How incredible is that? Here's the exciting part. In our conversation as we're talking through these numbers and finances, do you know where it turned to? How can we give more away? What else can we be doing with the finances that God has blessed us with? Locally, abroad, open arms, Honduras. We were talking to the representative in the Quebec region for the fellowship, Sergey Lee. And we were talking about how can we do more in Quebec where there's less than 1% evangelical Christian to spread the gospel in Quebec. And we were talking through regions and church revitalizations and church plants. And we're so excited for what God may be calling us to do there. We're going to let you know more about that in the future. But how exciting is that? God has blessed us so that we can bless others. Generosity. I was excited. I don't know if you're excited, but I was excited. The early days of the church are unique. They're founding times in the church's history. Jesus has just returned to heaven. The Holy Spirit has just rushed in. The apostles are preaching their eyewitness testimony. These are days like never before and never since. Now flip over to Acts chapter 4 and verse 36. We need to learn from how they showed the gospel through generosity. So what Luke does in the, gospel, in the Acts of the Apostles, he shows us two examples, a good example and a bad example. I like when things are clear, black and white, like do this, don't do this. So we're going to make it really simple and really clear today. He shows us a good example and a bad example. Do you want the good news first or the bad news first? Bad? Well, let's do the good first, because that's how Luke does it. <laughs> let's give the good example. Verse 36. Thus, 
Joseph. Now, do you ever get confused by how many Josephs there are in Scripture? I mean, you at home, how many times have you read the name Joseph and you think, is it Joseph in Egypt? Is it Joseph in the Christmas story? Is it Josephus from church history? Now, here's another Joseph. Now, I didn't know this guy's name was Joseph because if you read on, he was also called by the name. Some translations or versions say nicknamed by the apostles Barnabas. Now, we know Barnabas, don't we? Barnabas' name is all through the book of Acts into the epistles of Paul, and it means son of encouragement. How's that for a nickname? I want to be known as somebody who's encouraging, don't you? A Levite, native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. How radically generous is that? Do you realize how much land costs here in Colchester County? Have you ever looked around, seen some of the prices on some of the real estate that's for sale out there? Elsie and I thought for a very short, brief period of time that maybe we could purchase land and build a small, modest home. But as soon as we saw prices of land and the lack of availability, we said that's not going to be in it for us. But now just think of this. Now there's a little speculation here, okay? So use your discernment. But in an agrarian culture like the one we're talking about here, wouldn't land be far more costly? And then in a culture where things are handed down from generation to generation, inherited from previous generations, can't you just see Barnabas calling up his cousin? Yeah, hey, cuz, I'm going to sell great-great-granddaddy's field and I'm going to give all the money to the apostles. How do you think that would go over? Or think about the conversation at the bank. Yep, uh, Mr. Joseph Barnabas, your, uh, your certified check came in good. Uh, we got the letter from the lawyer's office. We got the deed papers here. It's all said and done. Uh, where would you like to deposit the money? We can show you some investment strategies that are doing well this quarter. Would you like us to tell you more about that? And he says, nah. I want to withdraw it all in cash, please. Well, Mr. Barnabas, uh, are you going to make a purchase? What are you planning to do with your money? Actually, I'm going to give it all away. <laughs> are you serious? Who are you going to give it to? Well, you know those apostles who are in the inner city there by the temple in Solomon's porch, and they're talking about how Jesus isn't dead anymore. He, he rose from the dead, and they're preaching this good news. I'm going to give them all the money. Well, what are they going to do with it? I don't really know, but that's up to them. I'm going to give it all away. How radically generous is that? What does that look like in the eyes of the world? That is not normal. That is radical. Radical generosity. In the eyes of most, Barnabas would have been squandering his inheritance, wouldn't he? Just giving it away. Wouldn't it be kind of like a prodigal son story in the eyes of that culture? You took your inheritance, you cashed it in, and now you've blown all the money. Now, now where are you going to live, Barnabas? What's your plan from here on in? Radically generous. But here's what I want you to see. His one act of generosity, which I don't think was his first and certainly wasn't his last, it led to another act of generosity, which led to another, which led to another Barnabas is one of the prominent characters in early church history. 
Barnabas is nicknamed Barnabas, son of encouragement, the supporter, the encourager, the one who upholds, because he is responsible for receiving the Apostle Paul into the fellowship of Christians. Do you remember the story? Saul is on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus, and on the road, on the way to Damascus, Jesus shows up. He's blinded for three days. Jesus gives him a new mission. He's totally changed. He's given up his old ways. Now he's looking forward. A disciple, I believe his name was Ananias, actually, is sent to talk to Paul. And then Paul comes to the early church that's gathered in Jerusalem, and who's the one who receives him? Barnabas. Barnabas is the one who brings him in, receives him, and endorses and supports him in front of the church who thinks, there's something fishy about this guy. This might be a wolf in sheep's clothing. You remember what he did to our cousins and our family and the Christians who lived? And Barnabas is the one who stands up for Paul. Barnabas is a traveling companion with Paul. Barnabas supports Paul at the Jerusalem Council when they're talking about making it easy for people to receive the grace of the gospel, not making it harder than it needs to be. And then Barnabas, true to his name, he stands up and he supports his cousin John Mark when Paul thinks it's best to leave him behind and continue on. Barnabas stands up for John Mark. Barnabas gives his life to missionary work and establishing the early church, evangelism, and church history tells us that he was martyred for his faith. That's Barnabas. And this is the first time we see Barnabas, a radical act of generosity that marked and characterized the ministry of his whole life. That's the good example. Are you ready for the bad example? You know, sometimes... You need to hear the bad news so you can embrace the good news, right? Sometimes you need to see the bad example before you know the good example is the way to go. Any, any parents out there you need to tell your kids, hey, I want you to do this. Well, what will you do if I don't? And then you got to explain, well, here's the consequences if you don't. Okay, well, I guess I'll do the right thing, right? Sometimes we learn more from the bad example than we learn from the good example. And this is a bad example. This is some hard scripture to digest. If you're here for the first time in person or you're here online, um, this is going to be tough. If If you're new to church, if you're new to scripture, I'm sorry that this is your first taste of scripture because this is a tough scripture to understand. I'm going to try and do it justice, but this is a hard story about the holiness and the judgment of God. Acts chapter 5 And verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. Now the name Ananias means God is merciful. God shows mercy. Sapphira means sapphire or beautiful. And what they do is not merciful and it's not beautiful. So it doesn't ring true to their name. And notice that it's with his wife. They do this together. They sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. Some versions say with her full knowledge. He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, somehow the Spirit empowered him and gave him a level of discernment that goes beyond the ordinary. He knew that this was a lie. Ananias 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Yeah, wouldn't you be scared? If we were taking up the offering today and somebody dropped dead, wouldn't you think twice about what you put in? The young men rose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Simple as that. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. How did she not know? It's been three hours, and you don't know what happened to Ananias? Oh, that Ananias, he's always disappearing. Three hours. She had no idea. She shows up. Peter says to her, now this is called a bear trap right here. I don't know if this was led by the Spirit or if this was his flesh calling out, but this is a bear trap. Tell me, Sapphira, whether you sold the land for so much. And I'm guessing he gave the amount that Ananias told him. And she said, why, yes, that's the right amount right there. So she agrees in on the lie. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. That's a poetic poetic way of saying you're done. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear again obviously, came upon the whole church. This is the first time we see the term church in Scripture. This is the first time the church is called the church. And this is the first time that sin has entered the church. And upon all who heard of these things. So there was great fear, not only upon those in the church, but those outside the church. Because you'd know the community's watching what happens in the church, don't you? They might pretend like they don't care. They might pretend like there's no curiosity or, or any weight in what we're doing. But they're watching. They want to see if what we say we believe is what we truly believe. And how we show it and how we tell it by our actions, our words and deeds. Great fear. How's that for a crazy story? Right? Is that not radical or what? For a second there, you kind of think like you're reading a story from the Old Testament, don't you? You got to check again. Is this still the New Testament? Is this really the age of grace, the age of the church? God is, is smiting someone for their disobedience? How does that fit in the age of grace? Why did Ananias drop dead? I mean, the understanding is that Ananias... And Sapphira sold the property. They're part of the church. They brought part of the proceeds in, which is what you and I would do today, wouldn't it be? I mean, we make some money. We give some of that money. And we use the rest to pay the mortgage, pay the car bill, put food on the table to care for our families. That's how it works. Traditionally, we start, we start a base percentage at 10%. We call it a tithe. 
That's kind of what we're used to in the church. We see this, this teaching in the Old Testament of first fruits and giving the first to God and how 10% was a number that kept coming up. And throughout the Old Testament, there's many more percentages that go beyond that that refer to first fruits or this act of tithing. Isn't that what we would do? We come across some money, we give some of it to the church. That's what Ananias and Sapphira did. By today's standards, in our church and in many churches, this would be considered generous. Peter clarifies what the issue is in his fiery sermon to both Ananias and then three hours later to Sapphira. The issue is not that they didn't give all the money. The issue is not that they sold a piece of property and gave 90%, 80%, 70%, whatever the percentage was. The issue was not the percentage. The issue was their heart in giving it. They lied. They walked into the assembly of the believers, the church. They walked into the church. In Solomon's porch, the center of the city, in public, in full view, within earshot of a crowd of people, they walked in individually three hours apart and said, we're giving it all. They lied. In the presence of God, the apostles, the church assembly, and then the greater city of Jerusalem. They lied. They faked their generosity. They pretended. They were hypocritical. Ananias and Sapphira planned this. They thought it through. They agreed on it. Now, marriage tip number one. <laughs> if you're going to make a big financial decision, your spouse better have buy-in on that decision before you go through with it. Marriage tip number two, you should not contrive sin and plan it with your spouse. Is that easy enough? Is that, is that too deep? You shouldn't plan sin with your spouse. Peter says, wasn't it your land? I mean, you could have done what you wanted with it. You didn't have to sell it. It was your land. There's nothing wrong with owning land. There's nothing wrong with having a home, a place for your family. And when you did sell it and you had the money, wasn't it yours? The money was your own. You didn't have to give it to the church. There's nothing wrong with having money in the bank. There's nothing wrong with having a college fund for your kids. There's nothing wrong with having retirement savings. There's nothing wrong with supporting your family, having a home, and having some material items. The issue was they faked it. They pretended, they lied, they tried to be something that they were not. How many times do we get caught in that same trap? I love how Peter says, you have not lied to man, you've lied to God. You, you can pretend and you can fake and you can fool a lot of people. All, all kinds of people do that. In, in fact, it is human nature to pretend, isn't it? We find out really quickly that being real causes pain, so let's fake it. And in church, sometimes we tend to fake it a lot. Social media has made an entire business of being fake, hypocritical. The issue was they were being fake. They lied about the amount. 
You have not lied to man, but to God. You know, God's never going to honor or bless who you pretend to be. Jesus died for who you really are. And who you pretend to be is not the person that God loves. God loves you as you are. While you were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us who we really are. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to fake it. We don't have to try and clean ourselves up before we come to God. He loves us as we really are. Why did Ananias and Sapphira lie? Why did, why did they ever think this thing up? Why wouldn't they be content with saying, here's a part of the money and, and just see what the response might be? Why did they have to fake it? There was greed. There was jealousy. There was comparison. I don't think the devil can possess a Christian. In fact, I, I know that he can't. The devil can't control you by his own validity, by his own power. Because the Holy Spirit, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells you. He sits on the throne of your heart, and the devil can't kick him off it without your permission. The devil can't get in you unless you give him a foothold. Acts chapter 5 and verse 3 that we just read. In the New Living Translation, it's translated this way. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You know, if, if we allow anger to sit, if we allow bitterness to build, if we, if we allow greed to get a grip on our heart, we are inviting the devil to take a foothold. The longer we let it sit, the longer we practice sin, the stronger the devil's hold becomes. Holy Spirit doesn't lose his power. We're just choosing not to live by it. And the devil gets a foothold in our heart. Generosity is a heart issue. And Ananias and Sapphira had a heart issue. They had a compromised heart. And it was by their own choosing. They let Satan come in. They wanted to be Barnabas. They wanted the church to look at them like the church looked at Barnabas. Nicknamed him son of encouragement. Maybe they wanted a nickname. Ananias, the generous, Sapphira, the benevolent. And they came up and they lied saying, you remember Barnabas who was just up here? We saw him do this. So we went and we're doing the same thing. We sold a piece of property. We're given everything. Now we want the accolades that Barnabas has received. We want the nickname. We want the reputation. We want the standing that Barnabas has. Greed, jealousy, selfishness. They let it grip their heart and compromise their heart and the devil took a foothold. Why is the punishment so harsh? This is what I want to spend the rest of the time talking about. Because this, this is a real struggle for a lot of people. A lot of people who study the Bible, they don't agree on this part. Some people think that Peter murdered Ananias and Sapphira. I don't see that in Scripture. Some people think that this, this is just like symbolism and metaphor and it, it didn't really happen it just kind of illustrates the heart of God when it comes to sin I, I think this really happened I believe this really happened and I, I want to try and explain it a little further um, but I'm, I'm gonna need to do another show and tell <laughs> does anybody remember these do you remember this what's it called 
overhead, overhead projector, the, the OPS, overhead projection system. Now, talk about show and tell. Talk about going way back to your school days, right? <laughs> maybe you haven't seen this for a while. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you use it on a regular basis. I don't know. But uh, overhead projection systems like this uh, were incredible technology. We're talking a light bulb and a mirror, right? And then you have these transparencies, and you can print on the transparencies that are see-through, lay them on the screen, the light shines through, but it doesn't shine through the ink, and then it can reflect onto the screen, and you can project an image on the screen. Do you remember how complicated it was to like get it lined up? And you'd always put it on, and it would be backwards, so you'd flip it, but then it would be upside down somehow, so you'd have to flip it again. It was all so confusing. When I carried this up, uh, Jason said, hey, I remember those. I had a teacher who could talk and write so that it would work on the screen, which would be like upside down and backwards somehow. I don't know how you get there. But one of the cool things about these projectors, these overhead projectors, was that you can make a design on one piece of transparency and put it on, and then you can make a design on another piece of transparency and layer it on top. And then you can make a design on yet another piece of transparency and layer it on top. And you can make it do all kinds of cool things. Like, do you remember uh, the teacher would have the waves and then the boat would be on a different page and she could make it look like the boat was floating? Do you remember that? Or she could like layer a picture, but then another picture would be like the hair on top of the face, something like that. Now, what I want to try and explain is a literary principle that Luke, the doctor, who's recording the book of Acts through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he employs this literary style of layering, this literary tool called layering, taking multiple stories from the pages of Scripture, layering them up so it makes a fuller, more robust picture of what's being implied here in Scripture. Are you with me? So... When I read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, my first thought when I started reading that was Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Here you have the first married couple. They make a decision together to share the fruit that God said not to, and they're punished for it severely. In fact, all of the human race is punished for it. You put that story on the overhead projector. Then the next story I was thinking of, Oh, I'm having a hard time remembering the names. But you remember uh, Aaron's oldest sons. Does anybody remember that? If you're at home, type it in the chat. I would be so impressed if you remember these names. Was it Ichabod and something like that? I'm going to get it totally wrong. It's in my notes, but they're under this mammoth thing. But the two oldest sons of Aaron, they offered strange fire on the altar in the book of Leviticus, right? And then the fire of God came down and consumed them. It was a pretty harsh punishment, for a sin that they had committed in the book of Leviticus as the sacrificial system was being implemented. You put that story on there. And then I think about the story of Achan. You remember Achan? Achan stole the bacon. He took the spoil from battle. He hid it under his tent, and then they couldn't have any victory. And when they found out, it was a harsh consequence. I think it was he and his whole family uh, were killed for that sin. As they were stepping into the promised land for the first time, that's what happened. And then... I had another story on there. It was um, Uzziah. Uzziah. When he's traveling with the oxen and the cart and the ark of God is on there and they're bringing it back to Jerusalem and the cart begins to tip, it becomes unstable, so he reaches out and he touches the ark 
of the covenant and he dies right there. Harsh punishment. And it's as the temple is being set up, the ark is being returned back, God's presence is coming back, instituted into the land of Jerusalem. You put that story on there and then you put the story of Ananias and Sapphira and all of a sudden it shows more meaning to the story. What do all these stories have in common? God is instituting a new thing. You have creation. You have the sacrificial system. You have coming into the promised land for the first time. You have the ark of God, the presence of God returning back to Jerusalem. And then you have the founding of the church. You have all these new stages where God is instituting a new thing. And God exemplifies the seriousness of sin in that newly instituted thing with these stories, these examples. It's a picture of the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. It's a picture of heaven, really. Heaven is going to ultimately be the new thing, the new heavens, the new earth. That's what we're waiting for and longing for. And when those are instituted, there is going to be no sin. Sin will be eradicated forevermore because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the story of redemption. That's the story of the gospel. And Ananias and Sapphira show the seriousness of sin when it comes to the institution of the church. Now, I want to close off here. Where did I put my remote? Is it hidden under here? Here it is. Can you imagine using one of these? (laughs) Maybe I should preach with one of these some Sunday. Peggy, you can help me with it. I want to close off right here, verse 13 of Acts chapter 5. None of the rest dared to join them. Well, would you? Seriously? I mean, if one of the members of the church, they both dropped dead because they lied about what they gave. None of the rest dared to join them. But the people held them in high esteem. Look at verse 14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Do you realize that when the church faces the hypocrisy within it and decides to act in authentic generosity, that it will build respect, fearful respect among the community? And that it will result in the evangelism, the conversion, the salvation, the new life of multitudes of both men and women? What if we got serious about generosity? What what if 2021 became a year of generosity for us? And what if we chose to live out the gospel by giving it away? What if we gave more than we took, and it's because of the death of Jesus Christ, the message of the new life that God gives because of the resurrection of Jesus. Father God, I want to praise you today for who you are. Thank you for how you love us, how you care for us. Thank you for how you sent life. How could we not respond in generosity ourselves? God, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.